0: We have a remarkable panel gathered here today. I want to thank you all for being here. I know some of you are here as part of the classes that you're taking where you're going to touch on eyewitness memory issues. Some of you may never have encountered eyewitness memory issues, except you've seen you know, lineups on TV and police procedural type shows. Uh, we have an incredibly diverse panel. We have to thank the Laura and John Arnold Foundation, in addition to our criminal law journal that, that organized this event, but the, the Arnold Foundation has, has funded a whole series of research projects that a number of us at UVA and at the University of Utah are working on. We spent all morning discussing studies that we're working on, but we're here to talk to you about the problem and the interest in eyewitness memory from, from very, very different perspectives. So on our panel, we have Tom Albright uh, sitting in the, in the middle, who's a professor and director of the Vision Center at the Salk Institute in San Diego. Uh, he studies how the brain perceives images. He's a neuroscientist and a psychologist, he received many awards for his work. And he was the co-chair of the National Academy of Sciences Report, which some of you may have come across in classes, but he'll tell you more about it. A National Academy of Sciences Report called Identifying a Culprit, which came out in fall 2014 and set out some of the challenges and the Uh, what we've learned from research on on memory and vision and what that means for the legal system. Speaking of the legal system, we have on the end, Judge Robert Kane, former Massachusetts Superior Court judge. Uh, He chaired a Supreme Judicial Council study group on eyewitness evidence in Massachusetts that made a series of recommendations. He's a former assistant district attorney. He's taught evidence, trial practice classes some of you may have taken. Uh, He was an attorney on the Massachusetts Defenders Committee as well. And there's also, he initiated a really remarkable alternative sentencing program in Massachusetts called Changing Lives Through in Literature, involving you know, reading novels with, with incarcerated individuals. Uh, we have David LeVon here, President and CEO of the American Association of Prosecuting Attorneys. He represents prosecutors, he is a former prosecutor, a WDA in Orange and Humboldt counties in California. He directed the California District Attorneys Association. And he, through his organization, does all sorts of trainings, technical assistance, and policy related to prosecution in in America. And uh, Karen Newworth is here, uh, sitting next to Tom Albright and uh, next to our final guest, Darrell Stevens. Karen Newworth is a senior staff attorney at the Innocence Project at Cardozo in in New York City. I'm sure some of you have heard of the Innocence Project. But Karen's work is is it focuses on her, her area of strategic litigation. She specifically does work in the area of eyewitness litigation. Also training, also public education, Uh, but she does work litigating questions of how should eyewitness memory be handled in the courts, in state and federal court around the country. Uh, She did criminal defense work prior to that at two different New York firms. Uh, Daryl Stevens, sitting to to Karen's right, your left, uh, is the executive director of the Major City Chiefs Association. Post he's held since 2010. Uh, incredibly innovative police chief for many years before that, including at uh, Charlotte-Mecklenburg, North Carolina. He's been the executive director of the Police Executive Research Forum for six years, which is a leading organization that does, uh, studies police practices. He's been a leading voice for, for many years studying and advocating for progressive and evidence-based policing, which is his interest in the problem of evidence memory grows out of that. So we have, you know, our panelists come from the sciences, from different areas of law, from policing, from prosecution, from the bench. Uh, couldn't be more pleased to have them here today, here at UVA, and to have all of you here. I'll turn it over to our panelists. The plan is the will to talk for about 10 minutes and say who they are, why they're how they came to be interested in this topic, what their contributions, what their thoughts are on the topic. Um, but we should have plenty of time at the end for all of your questions. I have questions, but I'd rather you ask them. So we'll we'll, we'll pause at the end, after each of them has spoken, and, and hopefully hear lots of questions from you all. So let's give a big hand to our panel, and then we'll hear first. <laughs> well, why don't we start with uh, Judge Kane and work work our way to to the right side? I'm a common citizen now. <laughs>
1: And I love Havid (laughs) Yacht. I will begin with some dates and events to provide a context for my remarks. In two thousand and eleven, New Jersey through the Henderson decision radically altered its approach to identification evidence. It did so because of the fact that Wrongful convictions are often tied to mistaken identifications. In 2013, the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts convened the study group on eyewitness evidence, and I chaired that group. After lots of work and after lots of arguments, that lusty group issued a 162-page report supporting a radical restructuring of Massachusetts' approach to eyewitness evidence. Both Massachusetts and New Jersey issued new jury instructions on identification evidence. In 2016, an important event occurred. New Jersey amended its new instructions in view of the Yoakam study. The Yocum study had advised New Jersey's judiciary to be concerned about the new instructions causing jurors to, and I quote, indiscriminately discount any and all identification testimony. With that quote in mind, I turn to my remarks. I have been reading Anthony Lewis's Freedom of the Thought We Hate. In his review of the First Amendment's evolution, Lewis emphasized all of the Wendell Holmes' opinions. In one passage, Holmes called the Constitution an experiment. I suggest that Holmes would agree with me that for the experiment in democracy to survive and to prosper, there must be rigorous review. And where substantial problems are perceived, there must be timely corrections. The concept of an experiment fits well the new identification instructions. As a former trial judge who viewed trial by jury as the life's blood of justice, I say that the reviews from of the experiment illuminate serious problems. I also say that the problems present opportunities for the judiciary to improve the way it educates jurors. Before I turn to remedies, I used my experience with jurors to comment on the troubles identified by the research. In reviewing the research on New Jersey's original and revised instructions, I nodded my head visibly and often to the comment, if trained judges are not particularly knowledgeable about eyewitness testimony, how can courts expect lay people to be so. Perhaps unwittingly, that observation nicely captured our present predicament. The use of a judge as the supreme and only expert witness about the meaning of psychological and neurological research on the activities of human memory is unprecedented. The proposition that judicial instruction can substitute for expert testimony is stunning. I think you know where I'm headed. It necessitates close examination of the proposition's premises. The substitution of the judge for the forensic expert assumes that in less than a half an hour, a judge can inform laypeople about how memory works, what factors influence the accuracy, of an identification and how those various factors interact. Otherwise stated, the judge can take a complex body of psychological and neurological research and distill it into a 30-minute binding lecture. Such an undertaking to be successful would require language which is both true to the research and clear to the jurors' charged with the responsibility to understand it and to integrate it, and I emphasize the second, and to integrate it into a collective judgment about the identifications accuracy. Courts need to be constantly aware that jurors representing the lot of humanity possessing a wide range of education and aptitude. What does the jur- research show us? about New Jersey's instruction's effectiveness in getting jurors to understand the factors influencing the accuracy of human memory and to understand how to integrate those factors into a judgment on the identification's accuracy. Plainly stated, the research demonstrates that when the jurors deliberate, they are confused. About the instructions' meaning, and consequently, unable to distinguish strong witnessing identification cases from weak cases. Jurors' inability to be sensitive to the differences between strong and weak witnessing identification cases makes them skeptical about their ability to judge. What happens? The result is that the jurors give up and they come to the conclusion of not guilty. This brings up the question of what produces the confusion. Concrete examples of juror confusion are found in the studies on New Jersey's original and revised instructions. Jurors understood the original instructions to mean, this is somewhat hard to understand, that any identification procedure increased accuracy regardless of whether it was a show-up, a one-on-one, or a feel-like. didn't matter. On the other hand, when jurors correctly understood the instructions' description of factors, they were unable to integrate their knowledge into verdicts. Thus, the instructions failed to give the jurors the two things that these lay people need an understanding of the factors and an understanding of how to integrate those factors into the decision on the identification of the factors. The study that included New Jersey's revised instructions demonstrated that the instructions failed to instruct jurors about those two questions and failed to to explain sufficiently what is called exposure duration. I just use that as an example because my time is limited. I want us collectively to consider the instruction addressing exposure duration, which in plain English is the amount of time the eyewitness has to view the perpetrator. And I want us to ask ourselves the question can we reasonably expect our fellow citizens, the lay people who sit in that jury, who come into our courtrooms, hopeful that they're going to be able to, to uh, address their obligation, will feel able to do so? New Jersey's exposure duration instruction states, and I quote, those viewing a perpetrator for only 12 seconds made correct identifications in 30% of perpetrator present lineups and false identification in 85% of perpetrator absent lineups. Those viewing the perpetrator for 45 seconds had 90% correct identifications in perpetrator present lineups and 45% false identification in perpetrator absent lineups. Now, do the lay jurors sitting in the jury box, wonder what perpetrator present and perpetrator absent lineups have to do with the amount of time the witness viewed the perpetrator. Next, assume the eyewitness tells the jurors that he had observed the the perpetrator for at least two minutes, not the 12 seconds, not the 45 seconds. Would the jury become confused about how to integrate this new fact into the instruction, assume the answer is yes, and the jurors ask the judge, help us out. Can we expect that the judge doesn't know the answer, doesn't know how to integrate the two minutes into the instruction, and tells the jurors, go back to the delivery room and continue your deliberation. If that occurs, does the juror feel confused, perhaps angry, and ultimately I have a number of other examples, but as I said, my time is short. But I surely could go through a good number of these to show you juror confusion. If we fail to correct these instructions, the following three outcomes may occur. First, more jurors leave our courthouses feeling disappointed, if not angry, about the court's failure to help them perform their duty to reach an informed decision. Second, the police, and I give the police great credit, who have been strong allies of this movement to reduce wrongful convictions, reduce mistaken identification, may become alienated. If they have a case, and they have every reason to believe this case will result in a not guilty, they see consecutively guilty verdict, and they see consecutively not guilty, not guilty. And the people who were the victims of this, who are poor, who run the common grocery store, who are the subject of a robbery, murder, what do they do? And third, a new narrative may emerge called wrongful acquittals. Narratives change. And they change because of stories. And if the story becomes, one after another, a wrongful acquittal, our movement, which is a deeply felt need to rid ourselves of these wrongful convictions, may be stymied and stalled. Allow me to quickly finish with some hope, a brief description and endorsement of what is called the I-I, and it's spelled out E-Y-E, a teaching aid. I view that teaching aid as a helpful <coughs> technique to teach jurors. In the modern age, it uses PowerPoint techniques, spacing, emphasis, and uh, repetition for purposes of getting the jurors to understand. Besides those speeches, I recommend it as a platform for improving identification instructions based on the clarity of the description. If I were to give you, and they're in PowerPoint, the PowerPoint instructions, and I would, on one side of the PowerPoint instructions under the eye, and I would give you New Jersey's and you would compare, you would see a dramatic difference in clarity. They use techniques, that are, they use statements and then questions, they do a lot of things, quite frankly, a good educator would say, bravo. So I recommend it for that reason, and I also say that it has the beginnings of an integration of the factors which is, in my mind, a decision tree, which gets the jurors to an answer. And so I have questions. I have objections to the IA, but I think it's a good large
2: point. can't see the back.
0: Good afternoon
2: really good to have an opportunity to spend some time with you, uh, talking about what has come to m- for me to be a pretty important issue of uh, justice in America and uh, a system on which uh, has with a lot of questions that uh, I did not have as an individual earlier in my career. Uh, I'm the executive director of a group called Major City Chiefs Association, large cities in the United States and Canada, 79 agencies of that. Uh, that come together periodically for educational purposes to try to uh, have influence on public policy that affects uh, public safety in in our communities and to develop future leaders. Uh, we have a, a program that's aimed at developing people to take on those police chief jobs in the larger cities throughout the United States and Canada as well. Um, I became involved in this innocence issue uh, While well, I was the police chief in, in Charlotte, Mecklenburg, North Carolina. Uh, back in the, uh, 2001, uh, the uh, chief justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court uh, put together a group that uh, they called the Innocence Commission. And the idea was to take a look at the policies and practices of the criminal justice system in North Carolina that has led to outcomes where we have actually innocent people uh, sentenced to prison. Uh, some on, uh, uh, ended up on, on death row. A couple cases in North Carolina at that time. Uh, and now we're, we're in a position where I uh, also served on the Innocence Project Board, the, uh, the National Innocence Project, with, uh, uh, and currently it focused on DNA cases. We currently have um, 351 uh, people who are actually innocent. Uh, evidence provided by DNA, which uh, seems to have come to be about the strongest evidence that we have in our system today, uh, that uh, had been uh, wrongfully convicted. And uh, 75% of those uh, were wrongfully convicted with uh, improper witness identification. It's a key aspect of the uh, reason that that they ended up in prison. And actually, had a horrible time getting out. I mean, the policies that we we're, are beginning to develop throughout the, the nation has made it a little bit easier for these cases to be reviewed. But uh, with the, the, the uh, for me as an individual who uh, spent a career in this business, uh, I thought we, I didn't think we got it wrong that that much. Uh, my my sense was is that by the time we went through the processes that we have in our system, and the appeals and the reviews and, and all of the steps that one goes through, that we're pretty, pretty much right about the, the people that are sitting in prison. And boy, was I wrong. Uh, not only have we had 351 DNA cases, there's uh, about 1,200, maybe 1,300 uh, incidents of wrongfully convicted people that are a part of a registry out of, uh, I think it's the University of Michigan. So, and then there's projections of many, many more people who are sitting in prisons today that have been wrongfully convicted. So this is an area of public policy. It's an area that uh, goes to the very heart of what our country is about and, and the very heart of our Constitution. And so there's no more area that is, uh, from my way of thinking, It's more critical to you as as budding lawyers and you, as you start to practice, to be advocates for policy change or uh, adjustments that will help us make sure that we get this right. One of the areas that we focus on in our organization, we do uh, policy statements, and and we have done policy statements on this area of wrongful conviction. Uh, We focus on eyewitness identification and encourage uh, police agencies to adopt the best practice that, that we know of at the current time. Uh, we encourage uh, police departments to do videotaped interrogations to help uh, minimize those uh, instances of, of false con- confessions. We encourage police departments to uh, have policies and protocols so that they can uh, retain uh, evidence, particularly biological evidence, that have, has proven to be so important in these wrongful conviction cases and in the cold cases that a lot of police departments are reviving the biological evidence is what the key the uh, dna the key way that uh, people get identified for crimes that have uh, been committed years and years ago so those are the the, the key things that that uh, that and policing can do to help contribute to a system like we all had in mind when it was created. The research that's been done uh, here at the University of Virginia, with the, the support of the Arnold Foundation, is another step in this long evolutionary process of us making sure that it gets right. There's one other thing that I think is, would be, is really critically important that we don't do very well in the criminal justice system, and I think. I think would make a difference is if, if we had the ability to do systematic reviews of these cases that have gone wrong, the ability to examine those in a non-blaming kind of fashion. Our, our world has to have somebody to blame, but if we were able to review these in a non-blaming uh, fashion and look for systemic problems, I think that would move us along much more quickly towards having the kind of policy and practice that helps us prevent that from happening to the end of it thanks for the opportunity to speak with you and for being here today.
3: Um, So my name is Karen Newworth. I'm the senior staff attorney in the Innocence Project Strategic Litigation Unit. Um, The Innocence Project started 25 years ago with a very simple mission, which was to use the then new technology of DNA testing to exonerate the wrongly convicted. Um, And we've been quite successful at that. We've now exonerated (coughs) 350 people. But as we went along, we realized that our cases had a lot of important information and data, um, and that we had a larger mission and a larger role, which was to figure out what the lessons of our cases were, and working together with social scientists, members of law enforcement, judges, lawyers, prosecutors, um, defense lawyers, how we could prevent future wrongful convictions. So with that realization, we developed a policy department that works to change the laws, works with law enforcement to get um, uh, voluntary policies um, written and adopted. So works with organizations like major city chiefs And then uh, five years ago, started this strategic litigation unit where I work. And our goal is to use strategic litigation or impact litigation to try to change the laws that affect um, the way the leading causes of wrongful conviction are handled in the courts. So in the case of eyewitness identification, which is the leading contributing cause of wrongful convictions among the DNA cases, I just realized I was talking very quickly. I'm gonna try to slow down. Um, uh, so uh, on the issue of eyewitness identification we see that there are a number of reasons why misidentification features so um, frequently in our cases first is on the front end the police procedures that were traditionally used were not um, the pra- kinds of practices that ensured that witnesses' memories were preserved and tested well so they were generating bad identification. And that's what our policy department does, right? Tries to improve police practices. But we also realized, and this is social scientists had been conducting this research and had reached this conclusion a long time ago, that the legal framework for dealing with eyewitness identification was not consistent with the scientific research, right? So if you're... Uh, defense lawyer and your, the, your client has been identified, you can challenge that identification in a due process challenge or an, an evidentiary challenge or whatever. But the law about what courts look at to determine whether or not this evidence should come in, should go to the jury, is completely at odds with what the scientific research tells us. Um, And so our kind of the holy grail of the work that we're doing is trying to change the due process test for how courts consider eyewitness identification evidence. Um, And we've done that. We focus mainly on the state level because we don't really see viable strategies on that right now on the federal level. Um, And so we work in states. We look for cases where this is an issue that presents itself. We file amicus briefs. We also do a lot of training of attorneys to lift up the level of practice on eyewitness identification cases to make sure that attorneys understand the social science research, understand how it impacts um, maybe the reliability of the identification in their case, how they can raise these issues at trial, in the appellate context, and then, of course, going up to state supreme courts. And then we do other trainings, training judges, trying to really help people understand both the social science research and how it affects um the law we also you know that's sort of the top level goal Um, as judge kane was describing we know that jurors do not understand um, what the research tells us about human memory and about identification so we have as a goal trying to improve the ways that jurors get information and so you know Six years ago, there were a handful of states that prohibited eyewitness expert testimony. We've worked in those states to change the law, and we've been successful in all but two. Um, And so we still are working. I mean, we've kind of given up in Louisiana at the moment because it's um, been very difficult. But our efforts there led us to, um, we represented an individual who had tried and failed to get an expert. An individual who we believe was was innocent is innocent. But our work does um, take us to be involved in cases where guilt and innocence are not the issue, but the, the legal remedy is. And so while we normally and generally do things like file amicus briefs um, and don't do direct representation, occasionally we do. So this case out of Louisiana where we see that we don't have a good kind of broad strategy to address this expert issue has led us to the representation of a person in state habeas corpus. And so we're going to be on that case for a long time. And the hope is that it will help us move the needle in, in Louisiana. So that's experts jury instructions. I think judge Kane and I probably differ on the value of the instructions, the ultimate value of the instructions that he's describing, although, the new instructions are confusing. They are not perfect. Um, but you know we, we are working to improve instructions to help jurors gain knowledge that way. And then we are trying to do other things, like control the way witness testimony in the courtroom happens. Because again, we know that jurors overvalue this information. They place great weight on a witness's confidence when research teaches that confidence and accuracy have complex relationships that don't map to what lay people think. So an effort that um, I started a couple years ago and everybody said you're never, ever, ever, ever gonna get this was just to get rid of in-court identifications, right? In-court identifications have been long a part of our uh, history. It's a part of the theater of a criminal trial. You've seen it on Law & Order. Any jury who sits in a criminal trial expects the witness to say yes, that's the man right there. And that's a very powerful moment, but the social science research teaches that that really has no probative value at all, right? I mean, 90% of people know exactly who the defendant is, and there are all sorts of problems of bias and suggestiveness, not to mention the passage of time between the crime and that in-court identification, the fact that the witness was usually exposed to the defendant's face beforehand, so they know who they're being asked to pick. So these are some of the examples of the kinds of work we do in my department. Um, I also work on the issue of confessions and interrogations, another leading contributing cause of wrongful convictions. And my colleagues are working on the use of forensic science evidence, another leading contributing cause. So, you know, in terms of speaking to you as law students, um, I think I've been very, very fortunate. Uh, I love my work. I kind of. it really dovetails perfectly with my individual strengths, so every day I'm doing things that I feel like I'm good at. Obviously, it feels very rewarding to me. It's something I believe in. Um, but also, I've gotten to really work with brilliant people throughout the, both the criminal justice system, but also the world of science, uh, journalists. You know, My work has just taken me to, to really extraordinary places. So. I wish the same for you. I know that you know it's very difficult, loans, money, uh, and but you know to think about what you're good at, what you're passionate about, and try to find a way either in your paying job or um, through volunteer work to to make those to make the law meaningful and to do some good in the world. Um, and I'll just close by giving you know a, a huge uh, credit to Professor Garrett who wrote a wonderful book that if you haven't read, you should buy and read called Convicting the Innocent because he did a deep dive into the first 250 DNA exonerations and he has kind of elevated that data collection that I was describing about the innocence cases and, and brought out such important lessons for the criminal justice system writ large from this small sample of cases which are surely just the tip of the iceberg. So buy the book or get it from the library, but read it and, you know, you're, you're in the presence of um, people on the faculty here who are doing such incredible work and, and you're just very fortunate and I wish you the best in your careers. Great. Well
4: done. Good afternoon. It's a great pleasure for me to be here. Before I develop my thesis about eyewitness identification and some of the problems with it, there are three things that I want to tell you about who I am. Uh, the first is I'm a neuroscientist. I'm a little bit um, out of the regular element here. Uh, I work at the uh, nonprofit biomedical Research Institute in San Diego, California called the Salk Institute for Biological Studies. Uh, and I'm curious at this point, how many of you have ever heard of the Salk Institute for Biological Studies? How many of you know who Jonas Salk is? I'm is. <laughs> is kind of, too tall. How many people know who Jonas Salk is? That's, a, that's pretty good. I teach an undergraduate course at UCSD, and every summer I and he's a freshman. and every summer I ask him, "How many of you know who Jonas Salk is?" and the numbers have been steadily mm. declining. Jonas Salk is a national hero. He founded the institution I work at. It's a wonderful place um, in which we do peer basic research. Now that's point number one. I'm a neuroscientist, and I study the brain basis of visual perception, visual memory, and visually guided behavior. And just to give you a feel for this, you probably had some biology courses in the past, but just to give you a feel for this, what we do is look at the parts of your brain that interpret visual information. So light is reflected off of surfaces in your environment, it's cast upon the retina, it's refracted by the lens in the front of your eyes, cast upon the retina ideally in focus, and light, Form of energy is converted into energy in the form of electrical signals, which are carried by neurons in your brain up to higher and higher levels. What your brain tries to do is interpret the pattern of light. What it was, what is it that's in the world that caused that pattern of light on the back of your eye? And so these are the things that we study. This is one of the areas of neuroscience that' has just broken wide open in the past 50 years. This is a very rapidly growing field of neuroscience in general, is. And the visual system is sort of the low-hanging fruit for a variety of technical reasons and conceptual reasons. It's fairly easy to study, and we know a lot about it. We also know a lot about how that visual information is stored in memory and how you retrieve those memories and use them for uh, solving problems as you go forward in the world. So, so that's the kind of science that I do. The other thing I want to tell you is that I was, um, about two or three years ago, I was asked to chair, along with... Judge Jed Raycroft, a federal judge for the um, uh, Southern District of New York, to chair a committee for the National Academy of Sciences that looked at the validity of eyewitness identification. And this committee, uh, Brandon was on that committee, there's some other people in the audience who were on that committee. This committee uh, composed of, I think, 14 people. Half the people were from the sciences, the other people from legal professions. Karen Cafadar is a fancy statistician over there who was essential on this committee. And this committee looked at three areas. We looked at police practices, how eyewitness identifications are done, and what are the best practices today. The committee also looked at the ways in which eyewitness identification evidence is used in the courtroom. Uh, how are juries communicated this information? And what are ways in which we might do <coughs> it better? And the third thing is uh, what does science have to tell us about why eyewitnesses fail? Why sometimes they get it right, but why often they fail? Because we care about the times that they fail, right? And so that's where scientists like me come into the picture. And the third thing I have to tell you before I develop that idea, the third thing I have to tell you is there are interesting cultural differences between different academic disciplines. And in the field of science, we have slides. And, and I, oh, there's a, a, a screen up right there. So I'm accustomed to speaking with slides and pointing to slides, but I'll just ramble on, because I can do that. So what's the problem with eyewitnesses? Why do they fail, and what can science tell us about it? Well, what we looked at what this committee looked at, was the set of variables that have been manipulated, and this typically happens in scientific studies, is a um, sort of a cottage indus- industry of applied science addressing the problem of eyewitness identification. And this is, the variables have been divided into two categories. There are the so-called estimator variables, and these are things, these are conditions that are present at the time the crime was committed. These are things that, in fact, you can draw a dividing line, the dividing line being the crime itself. And stuff that, uh, that reflects the state of the world at that time are the so-called estimator variables. You can't control these things. They include such things as the amount of lighting, the distance you're viewing, uh, distracting features in the visual scene, and so forth. And then there are the so-called system variables. These are the variables which reflect conditions after the identification occurred, and they include such things as the way the lineup is performed Uh, and the instructions given to the witness and so forth. And these, again, these can be controlled. And so the question is, how do these different variables influence the outcome? How do they influence the performance of an eyewitness? Performance being loosely defined as the probability that the witness is identifying the right person. Uh, And vision and memory are critical here because, and I want to stress this point, this is a problem that you encounter all the time. As you go about your daily activities, you identify things that you've seen before. The one thing that's unique about eyewitness identification is that the stakes are very high. You don't want to make mistakes. But you suffer the same uh, difficulties when you go out in the parking lot and identify your car. When you go, I travel a lot, I, I go to the luggage carousel. Which bag is mine? They all look alike. And I have to find my bag. And you can think of lots of examples of this as you go about your daily activities. And there is an enormous amount of science, visual science, science on, on the brain basis of memory, which has looked at these factors, the factors that influence your ability to identify things and recognize objects in your environment. And so my approach to this problem, coming from a scientific perspective, is to divide the, the, the nature of the problem into three, the three factors that influence the outcome. One is uncertainty, another is bias, and another is confidence. And so all <coughs> of these simple variables, which are looked at in uh, I applied eyewitness research, can fall into those different categories. And I can tell you, given a set of variables, how much uncertainty there might be in a, a witness's judgment about what happened on, on the day of the crime. I can tell you, given a number of variables, how much bias there might be introduced into the problem, bias uh, introduced at the time the witness events were happening, Biased introduced at the time of the lineup, and I can also tell you something about confidence. Confidence is uh, it, it's sort of a funny term because confidence really reflects our our sense that there is a uh, there's some coherence to the story, that I have some coherent set of ideas about what actually happened. Confidence doesn't really tell you about whether you're right or wrong; it's simply reflecting in the sense that you. Know, it, you've looked at all the parts, and they, they sort of match up with one another. Uh, this kind of judgment comes into play in lots of decisions we make. It's so like in a restaurant, for example. You go and and gather information from various sources. You don't know how good those sources are. They might be unreliable. There might be a lot of uncertainty associated with them. But if they all seem to match up, you become confident about it. And this is true of eyewitnesses as well. So by looking at these three factors, uncertainty, bias, and confidence in the basic sciences, we have a pretty good understanding of how people make decisions about sensory input, visual input in particular, and how they rely on their memories. And so this is the approach that I come to I come to this problem from, and I think that we, uh, there's a sort of opening up by bringing science into this field is one of the nice areas in which uh, the, the law has sort of embraced the scientific community so that we have something to say to contribute to the argument. And I, um, I look forward to, I've been drawn into this over the past few years, and I look forward to more interactions with the legal community and trying to solve this major problem in our society. Thank you very much.
5: I I guess no one wants to hear from the prosecutors. (laughs) I'm glad that uh, Tom uh, raised the uh, mic up a little bit because I was I was watching. I'm going how am I gonna do this? And also I wanted to make sure I could see the here uh, the turtle shirt back there, um, having family in Maryland grads. And I guess now that uh, you know, uh, Virginia's not in the I'm sorry Maryland's not in the ACC. You're not beat up and you're able to wear it. It's not graffiti or anything. So you know, I know there's some changes going on out there. Uh, first of all, I want to say thank you. As I'm looking around the room, look at how full this room is. That it was standing room only, and I know that folks are headed back, but to think about uh, the interest on something like eyewitness identification. I mean, the fact that you're all here is fabulous, because it is something we need to talk about. It is something, on behalf of prosecutors, we have got to get it right. Uh, it was very simple when Brandon said, will you be part of this? And I must say with the Arnold Foundation and the folks at the table, you do have some of the best and brightest kind of push through the issue and challenge. we already had a lively discussion this morning, um, but how do we get it right? And how do we use science uh, to, uh, to do the right thing? I agree with the judge on the, the jury instructions. The other thing that the judge uh, threw out there was incredibly important, is we can fix eyewitness identification. We can have absolute certainty that there's no improper identification. Anybody want to throw out how we do that? Don't use it. Don't use it. Fabulous, you're you're entirely correct. So (laughs) we get to the point, we have no eyewitness identification. So those particular crimes that are witnessed by somebody, if they're not corroborated, if we don't have other evidence, they never come to court. We'll have 100% protection. But what did the, the judge share about even New Jersey with their jury instructions? As you consistently told jurors, don't believe eyewitnesses, don't listen to their testimony, eyewitness identification is not relevant, or Karen surprised me by saying, don't even identify an accused in court. I'm sorry, if, if, and I've done a few things in my life of which I've been pulled over by the cops and there's been some issues. I certainly want somebody to say, that guy right there, that, that, that big fat guy, he's the one that did that crime. So it's scary to me in a confrontational situation that you'd end up saying, well, we're not going to identify anybody. We're just, we're just going to kind of throw it out there. So thank you for the answer to my question. How do we get it right? And what are the kind of things that we want to talk about? I'm one of those. My first exposure to this, and especially the science and the experts, it goes back to the late 80s. Okay? I was, as you heard, I was a California prosecutor, and I know with the room here, Probably I could do the same thing, raise the hands of those of you who were alive mm-hmm. uh, in about 1988 when I first encountered eyewitness identification <laughs> in applied psychology as it, that applies to the courtroom. And, oh, there we go, there we go, got a, got a couple. <laughs> and you got a little guy coming, or, or you're having too many uh, burgers and fries there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. um, but anyway, so here I am. I'm trying to film in a case. It was a carjacking case before it was called carjacking. Uh, well, you know, that, believe it or not, it used to be robbery with a gun. It wasn't a carjacking. No one knew what, what that phrase even meant. What uh, are the facts and circumstances relates to eyewitness identification. You had a, a defendant, Hispanic, walk up to a female, driving her boyfriend's bright red Camaro. There were still Camaros at that time. Bright red Camaro, putting that, that shotgun right in her face and saying, get out of the car. Now, she was 19 years of age, white girl, Hispanic, a male. And what did she decide to do with a shotgun on her face? Anyone want to hazard? her? Remember, it's her boyfriend's car. She did what all reasonable females would do, is like, he's going to be really mad at me if I give up this car. So she gets into an argument. You talk about your 20 seconds, your 40 seconds. She tells him, I'm not, no way, not going to have a car. I can't give up this car, it's his car. Which, he got a little upset you know, challenged by a female, got kind of a gun in your face, and you're not doing it. And so they argue a little more. So he goes to reach the door, and pull the door open, and basically drag her out of the car. Unfortunately for for him, door was locked. So it was a pull on the door didn't work. She's still not complying. What did he do next? He took the shotgun to the side of the car, pulled the trigger, and fired into that vehicle. When she heard the explosion, she decided it's time to give up the car. You know. I I care about my boyfriend, but I'm not going to go any farther than this. So at that point, she got out of the car. Now, I also told her, right, she's just at a stop sign. Car's in gear, she gets out of the car, off goes the car, it crashes. He now didn't get his car, he can't do what he was trying to do. He runs one direction, she runs the other. How does this apply to our topic? The officers were able to pull a partial print off of the door handle. Just a partial print, not a complete print. Got a partial print. Took that partial print. It, it went and uh, created a photo lineup. Photo lineup was was uh, showed to her. She's like, "That's him," right away. Defense says, "I want an in-person lineup. I don't believe the photo is sufficient." As Karen talked about, there was no identification at the preliminary hearing. Uh, for that purposes, because they they did not want her to see him. uh, And so that was kept out. She goes to a live lineup, said the same thing. That's him. We head to trial. In the trial phase, I, I must also back it up. The reason why I have to go all the way back to the 80s is it's very, very rare to try a case that is just eyewitness identification. Incredibly rare. And that's why it goes mostly to sexual assault. Mostly rape cases would be the cases you would exclude. Because having prosecuted a lot of child molest cases, and to the days of DNA, back to that in the late 80s, 90s, we had DNA, we we used the DNA to corroborate what the child said. Needless to say, live lineup happens. Picks him out, we go to trial. First thing the defense does is exclude the partial print. It's only a partial print. It's not reliable evidence. So now you, it's eyewitness only as far as what the jury does. Sure enough, guess what the defense does? And this is before reciprocal discovery. We're calling an expert. She didn't, she didn't see what she saw. And we're going to call an expert, as we've talked about today, cross-racial identification and weapon focus. And off we go. And I see, and I see the nods. What are kind of some of the key things about things like cross-racial identification? Wouldn't you want to know how many Hispanics uh, she hung out with? No, I see them not. Yeah. Guess what? She went, it's California. White kids uh, went to school there as well. They go to school with more Hispanics than do white kids. So it's like, you're telling me cross racial, can I can't identify as Hispanic. Are you kidding me? The boyfriend was Hispanic that she was living with. Second one that they want to talk about is weapon well focus. What did the facts and circumstances of her case give us? Does she believe it was a gun? Was she staring at the gun or was she arguing with him, I'm not going to give up my car? I put to you, she didn't care about the gun. She didn't believe the gun was real until it went off. So sure enough, Dr. Pasdak, one of the originators of the concept of the eyewitness identification, one of the keys in, in the theory of this, she was called by the defense, and, and we had a defense expert in the room. And it's a very interesting dialogue when you've got some evidence, what did it do for me? I come from a family of college professors. My sister, brother, uncle. So I am actually one of those nerdy types that I read the research. And so as she was coming in, it's like, give me the research. Let's, let's talk about the theories and how they interrelate. So it was a great intellectual exercise. But for the jurors to have somebody come in and say, she didn't see what she saw. And these are the theories that we're trying to test. It didn't translate. And it didn't do well. And they kind of laughed at her. We, we had it. As far as jury instructions, California has jury instru- had jury instructions. They continue to change them. They are a really key thing of how should you grade and, and think about uh, the particular testimony of the witness. But having an expert there, especially an expert that's paid by the defense to try to get somebody to be found not guilty, I felt in that case was not helpful. And then particularly, it hit me really hard because at that time I was preparing for a trial that was 20 plus, was about 20 years, Earlier, it was a late 60s case. There was a dual vehicular manslaughter with a drunk driver who rear-ended a Corvair and decapitated the the two passengers, the male and the female. Everyone that had been involved in that case had retired. They had no, I'm sorry about the details. Those are criminal cases. It is what it is. But all of the details of the case, these folks retired. They had no, I was hitting them cold. Do you remember that case? They were able to tell me the intersection, they were able to tell me the color of the cars, the smell of the liquor, alcohol, how the guy didn't really care, you know, wondering about, oh yeah, they're dead. Um, the car, the method, who was where, the age of the victims. Um, there are particular things that people never, ever forget. And so when we get into the applied research, and that been where I've been pushing people today, is how do we get better? What are the things out there that are going to get people to remember things better? How can we do better for our crime victims? You know, how can they too, instead of just, just handing them uh, a list of, uh, uh, of questions or something, because they too are, are equally uh, uh, confused. So, where do we go? And I know on time I'm, I'm working through. Uh, oh, I was going to say, okay, let me, let me go. So, so that was a time point in time of the 80s and in, in, into the early 90s. Where did it touch me again? be about the mid-90s. Why do I bring that time up? Because that's when something called color copies uh, came into origin. Because prior to to that, uh, photo lineups were actually pictures. If there was a photo spread, it was actually an envelope. And with police agencies, they used to, and Daryl probably remembers that, they would hold on to those lineups. They'd get booked into evidence. We'd get it in court. So the fact that we ended up with a color copy allowed lineups, and there's a concept of the double blind or the blind, uh, showing of a lineup. Now that we have color copies, now you could have unlimited lineups in your case. You could have officers other than the investigating officer have that lineup and be able to uh, move through. So that was a, a significant change, I would say, in the 90s as it related to eyewitness identification. Then when you get to the early 2000s, that's when I went to the State Association. And on behalf of prosecutors, that's why I worked with the Innocence Project on this very issue, on eyewitness identifications and protocols, on the taping of interrogations. Because again, on behalf of prosecutors, you want it taped. Let's hear exactly what the individual said. Let's hear what the cop said. Because the accusation is going to be against the cop or the detective. So so let's play that tape. And then the question about the one witness case and and the issues of corroboration. And especially, again, coming from California, we had 1111 of the penal code, which says if you use a co-conspirator, it has to be corroborated. So for us to say, if you're going to use a single witness, You've got to corroborate it in some fashion. That's something we can work with, but again, think about what are the consequences if, if you move in that direction. We end up moving and supporting those particular bills. I'm also gonna slow us down for, for 30 more seconds because of a concept that I think is really important and, it, and it's, it's exercised here. Um, this is executive branch activity, right? How do you interview a witness? What do you show them, what do you do? That's executive branch. Is that any different than what color the police car should be? Is that any different than, than uh, the decisions about the uniforms, the badges, and anything else that that officer does? And so it's a failure of the executive branch to step up, to look at what the Innocence Project had, and do something about it. That suddenly now you've got the courts in your business, or the reason why I was handling it in, in, in the mid-2000s, was the fact it's now in the legislature. So if the executive branch fails to do something, then the judicial branch will step in or the legislative branch. And that's what you have going on with our laboratory of 50 states plus the District of Columbia. So that was why, especially on behalf of prosecutors, A, acknowledging, look, it's a failure. You're right. We should have got together. We should have had protocols. We did not. Now we're, now we're fighting it as a legislative battle. And then uh, the next touch was 2014 with, with the commission and where can we go nationally and how do we do it better? So kind of wrapping it up, everything they said is very accurate. It's great to have all the different views and visions on behalf of prosecutors. Let's not miss the target because we have a beautiful job doing the right thing for the right reason to the right person. And none of us want to do anything different. And so absolutely looking at the mistakes that have happened, and they have been mistakes. There are innocent people that have gone to prison. And so how did that happen? What's that story there, and how do we do better? So that's why I'm involved. And, Professor, I yield back to you.